Uh, hey, what's good? This is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, and we're on the We Be Imagining podcast. Uh, thank you to Columbia University's The American Assembly and Insight Center uh, for their support to make this happen. Today is Thursday, April 1st. It's 3.06 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm here with my co-host, Ilan Mandel. What's good, Ilan? Hey, Khadija. Hi, my name is Ilan. I'm a PhD student at Cornell Tech. Uh, I use he, him, his. You outdoing oh. me. Uh, <laughs> and I see so her pronoun. <laughs> and today we're here with Zara Rachman, who is a researcher, writer, and linguist based in Berlin, Germany, and working internationally. She is also the deputy director at The Engine Room, an international nonprofit organization strengthening the fight for social justice by supporting civil society to use technology and data in strategic, effective, and responsible ways. Uh, thank you for coming on to the show, Zara. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. Would you like to say a little bit more about yourself outside of the uh, traditional professional bio? <laughs> yeah, um, sure. Yeah, um, my name's Arifman, uh, pronouns she, her, hers. Uh, as you said, I, yeah, I've kind of been working at the intersection of technology, data, power, identity, identification for a while now. Um, and I'm excited to dig into that more with you. Um, yeah, I think, I think you covered everything else, to be honest. Thank you. You know, what's interesting is that around the time when we reached out to have you on the show, this was during the time of the military coup in Myanmar, and I mm-hmm. immediately thought of a lot of your work around the Rohingya biometric collection. And then also preparing for today, I was looking back in June, the piece that you wrote about the uh, justice for George Floyd protests and the concern that uh, ended up, you know, not coming to fruition, but that public health COVID-19 contact tracing data was being used to surveil protesters. And I just felt like there's this interesting parallel where in one moment, I'm so impressed by the Rohingya who are like fleeing genocide, statesless, trying to negotiate access to humanitarian aid, but still fighting for the right to not give up their data in Mm -hmm. order to have access. And then also for, um, protesters in the United States who are like negotiating two pandemics of state violence and COVID-19 and trying to, you know, negotiate the relationship with technology to survive collectively Mm -hmm. and, you know, who to trust in that moment. And I guess it's not exactly a question, but as a, as a a starting provocation, Mm -hmm. um, what do you think people don't understand in this moment where surveillance capitalism, the idea that like everyone is watching us is pervasive, but people might not feel like they understand the ways in which these technologies actually operate. Yeah. I mean, I think you raised some interesting provocation. It also kind of speaks to something that I've been wondering a lot about in that it's interesting to think about where responsibility lies. And this is a conversation that's been happening a lot in the humanitarian space of when you have a community like the Rohingya, some say the world's most persecuted minority who have, as you said, fled multiple genocides at this point, um, have landed up in Bangladesh, uh, having had their villages burned to the ground. And then you have uh, the refugee agencies and the Bangladeshi government collecting biometric data. And it seems as though to them, I mean, this is not what UNHCR, the United, uh, United Nations, High Commission for Refugees, (laughs) UNHCR says, is happening, but this is what we heard from um, Rohingya on the ground, was that uh, they have to negotiate either getting, giving up the biometric data or getting access to kind of basic needs like food and shelter. Um, And it really highlights this question of where it shouldn't have to be their responsibility to negotiate that very basic, those negotiate between those basic rights. But then you know, they have, they, as you said, kind of, they have been negotiating this and they did um, in, I think it was November, 2018, carry out a strike where they said, they mislisted a very clear set of demands about how their biometric data is being used and said, we, we don't want this to be happening anymore. And we can talk more about that later, but um, yeah, it just makes me think about where, where responsibility lies, who's it should be, who we shouldn't have to, we shouldn't leave it to people who are in that kind of precarious situation to do that um, while also respecting their agency to say what they want and what they don't want. And maybe they are okay with it or maybe they're not, but yeah, there is a lot more around the kind of bigger structural issues at play. 
And it's interesting because when we're thinking about like grassroots demands and protections, we mm -hmm. often use the individualist language of rights. Mm -hmm. And I don't think any of us here are like impervious to the to the critiques that 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 come along with that framework. Yeah. But on the flip side, when we're looking at like how these technologies are developed, so much of it is infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And in a piece that we did for um, sorry, what is it, Global Voices in 2019 about Bangladesh cutting access to mobile phone services for the Rohingya. What I was thinking was interesting is this question of mobility, mm -hmm. because on one level you have the forced movement and migration of um, the Rohingya, you know, for a lot of displaced people globally, and then they're in this camp where their movement is kind of controlled, but in a way the ICT infrastructure kind of superseded what the camp may be intended as uh, the Rohingya were being accused of like uh, having political mobilization through, that was coordinated through the phones. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just wondering how you're thinking about mobility as it relates to being in these camps and also negotiating kind of political agency. Yeah, it's a, that's a great, great point. Cause they're, they, yeah, they were in these camps and then um, the Bangladeshi government tried to ban, ban anyone from the camps or any Rohingya from owning SIM cards, which is just, it's just such a, it feels like such a old fashioned isn't quite the right word, but such a, a bizarre way of understanding how IT or technology infrastructure works that you can't, you can ban access or you could ban people owning a SIM card or you could ban people going to certain areas where they might have network coverage. Um, so what the Bangladeshi government ended up doing was cutting off internet access to the camps, which obviously didn't only harm the Rohingya, but also people, anyone who lived in those vague areas, um, which was particularly harmful during the pandemic because people couldn't get access to information about what was happening or access to, you know, all sorts of really, really vital life-saving uh, information and yeah, things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the migration point, it just highlights for me how you know there is potential for technology to supersede as you say some of those physical boundaries or blocks that states or institutions put on our movement um but then there is still you know governments still have the control or in many countries the say in bangladesh at least government the government can control telecommunications companies and tell them to shut off access and then they they just do even though they there would be you know there is potentially the choice for them to say no we want to continue it and i think that talks to bigger issues of kind of state power and yeah telecommunications companies or the state power and private sector and that kind of intersection as well and I was wondering, so the UNHCR, as far as kind of its official documents and a lot of how I see it reported, articulates the need for biometric identification of uh, refugees or people in internally displaced camps, IDP mm -hmm. camps, um, as being a question of reducing fraud and yeah. one of ah. a right to identity and a right to banking uh, down yeah. the road. And, uh, you know, I think from the flip side, a lot of people are concerned about, you know, in the case of the Rohingya, like that information being shared with the same military that is targeting them. And people think about data privacy and safety. What are the implications of biometric identity? You know, what is a larger infrastructure that kind of it is a part of developing? Well, before I get onto that one, I just that question, I just want to address the completely ridiculous claim that it addresses fraud because it doesn't at all. Um, we did some research on this in, I think, 2017 or 2018. And yeah, as you say, the, the refugee agency says, this helps address fraud, which is so, uh, it's so enraging to me, honestly, because fraud happens, I mean, firstly, let's like unpack the word fraud. Like, what does that even mean? It means, in many cases, it means, it might mean someone claiming uh, two food packets for a day instead of one. And that might be, I mean, we spoke to people who were working in areas of complete crisis where only, what was it, like 50% of the calories that an adult needs were provided in any one food packet. So when we say someone was claiming two food packets, they were just trying to claim enough calories to survive as an adult. And that's why I find the whole, the whole kind of the bigger framework in which biometric identity is placed is so problematic to me because we're it's so dehumanizing to people 
to say that they're committing fraud when actually all they're doing is trying to, to get enough food to live for them or their families. And then secondly, we have the very issue that it, it doesn't address that problem in that, uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it is in our report that uh, very, f- like a tiny percentage of people actually claimed more than they should. And the issue of, I'm doing air quotes around fraud, um, actually happened further up in the supply chain. So people, uh, yeah, so food, lorries no, exactly. are going to somewhere that it shouldn't have. And that has nothing to do with these people at the very end of that supply chain who are who are claiming the food or claiming the aid. Um, so yeah, that that as a kind of framing, bigger framing issue, really places for me the issue of biometric identity in something that it's not addressing the problem that is being it's purporting to, which means there's something else at play, which means you know that biometric data or data is becoming as we know through surveillance capitalism, a very powerful, again, uh, air quotes, asset. Um, and yeah, I guess with refu- in the t- case of internally displaced people and refugees, uh, there is seeming to be some kind of market or much demand for create or kind of a weird competition between the World Food Programme and the UNHCR. So yeah, the World Food Programme and the UNHCR to create or to own the largest database of uh, largest biometric database of refugees, which, yeah, it's it's it leaves me sometimes speechless to think about the the huge what is it like the power disparities, the the abuse of power, the abuse of of this position that they have as providing aid, and I mean I've spoken to people who were involved in uh, UNHCR setting up of. The, their biometric database and they've they told me very openly like we didn't think about privacy like you try kind of retrofitting privacy into a database that now contains millions of people's biometric data and just the thought that you would go ahead and kind of power through and create this database of of incredibly personal biometric data so when we talk about biometric data we're thinking about any data that comes from your body so this is data that cannot change that you cannot you know you can't update your fingerprints if it happens to be leaked online it stays with you your entire life i mean from not for children there's some kind of nuances around that um but it's stuff that they can't change so the case that you mentioned of uh the rohingya if the military who have already targeted them were to get their hands on fingerprints data or yeah iris scans you would be able to identify the rohingya very like in a very targeted and precise way and we've seen throughout history, how personal data has been used to facilitate genocides. Uh, So it just seems hugely, hugely irresponsible and hugely against the kind of principle of humanitarian action, uh, which, you know, humanitarian action in itself has colonial uh, problems and all sorts of things. But this just seems so obviously, so obviously wrong. But yeah, it's it's incredible to me. So... um... If if we take the the kind of fraud statement as mm. as kind of absurd on its face, mm-hmm. is the is the kind of like maybe motivated reasoning being that the data itself is inherently valuable, or is it more along to the you know the the other articulation I see is a lot from the World Bank, right, where it mm-hmm. becomes about banking, mm-hmm. and I, you know I, I think Khadija and I recently have been thinking a lot about financialization, and is it either of those? Is it both? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I just wanted to add one thought that it just reminded me of when you were talking about um, collecting all of this data. It reminded me so much of the beginning of Virginia Eubanks' book, Automating Inequality, Mm. where she describes this conversation that she's having with um, this woman who has recently got an electronic benefit transfer card, EBT, where her food stamps were being provided. And they were talking about like the ease of which you can now make transactions as you know, the previous food stamps were like really obvious when you'd be at the checkout, like there were these like paper cards. Mm-hmm. And she's like, yeah, but now the caseworker is tracking all of my purchases. Mm. And this like, point of control, 
So on one level, like it's dispersing funds very quickly. And I can see like during COVID in different parts of the world, there's even startups now that are like for the betterment of humanity. We can now disperse all these funds based off of like predicting something about that geographic area and removing means testing. But it's also like collecting information about people's behavior and then you can also cancel it. Like we see this in India with their biometric card is mm-hmm. that suddenly some people no longer had access and were determined ineligible randomly. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's definitely overlap with what we see in other places. But I think there are so many aspects of it that it's hard to like, it's helpful to parse it apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, no, I was just curious, like what you were thinking beyond just that moment where they're being identified, like what is this, what, how, how do we uh, explicate, like what is this larger infrastructure? Yeah, um, I mean, to Ilan's uh, question as well, I think it is a combination of kind of the, uh, yeah, deals with the private sector, the inherent or the, the way that surveillance capitalism has made biometric data a valuable asset uh, and then what you mentioned, Kedra, of having of states having this control or being able to being able to make people legible to states and institutions in a way that you couldn't before. Um, but beyond the kind of that very obvious, you know, pieces of data infrastructure piece, there is also you know if we just think about the dignity and the the dignity and the the ability of people to to identify themselves for themselves, uh, which I think is really lost when we when we go straight to thinking about biometric identity and digital identification systems, in that they're systems that people can't define themselves for themselves. They are fitting into these categories or fitting into these kind of structures that have been built for them. Um, and lots of the people that we've spoken to in our research at the engine room uh, have mentioned feeling kind of a lot lack of dignity or a loss of dignity in having to go through these systems. Uh, not just, I mean, from every point from, you know, the process of uh, giving your biometric data for the first time, sometimes the process of uh, doing that means that Muslim women have to remove their headscarf or uh, people don't really understand what's happening. Like one person that my colleague interviewed in Bangladesh um in one of the Rohingya refugee camps, actually thought that the iris scanners were testing their eyes for eye disease. So that's why they went, and that's why they, what they thought was happening. And it was only actually in the process of the the research that, you know, they said, "Oh yeah, I, I I did this thing," and you know, there was a person, and he was very kindly testing my eyes to see if I had an eye disease. And our researcher, my colleague there, was just completely speechless. Like at that point, is it their responsibility to say no? They they actually weren't. And if someone told you that, that is hugely unethical um and if that's the reason that you went that's so far away from informed consent it's incredible um but yeah there's this uh, yeah this item of kind of lack of dignity that i think gets lost among the technical the t- talk about the technicalities as well that i think maybe you're referring to Kavika. yeah i think i was telling you before we started recording that i was binge watching some um id africa webinars where mm-hmm. they were very excited to share that namibia is leading the way in biometric identification and national id mm-hmm. and this particular talk focused on uh infant identity verification management oh, and one person was saying that um oh, they prefer to use footprints And another person was saying, no, 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 Iris is better. And they were saying, have you ever taken an infant and had them sit and put on these binocular kind of objects to scan their eyes? It's like very challenging. They could be asleep and they're but like Iris is the standard. And sometimes you're reading these white papers and it's hard for people to like think like, what does it mean to hold a baby Mm -hmm. and like walk them through this process of being because it's not just like undignified in an abstract sense, but literally you're forcing people to, you know, uh, be still and, and mm-hmm. subject themselves to this technology. Yeah. Yeah. You're forcing, I mean, put like at its very base, you're forcing their bodies to do something that they don't want to be doing. And that's just, I mean, whether it's producing data or doing anything, everyone should have agency over their own body and what happens to the, the data that is derived from their body. And I think that has been lost among that talk of kind of private sector ease and uh, banking, as you say, and microfinance and 
legibility and monitoring movements and being able to, you know, one argument that we hear a lot is um, that we need to know how many people are in the camp so that we can provide enough food. And it, I mean, this has always been an issue uh, and they managed to do it without man without collecting biometric data before. Um, but yeah, that, that issue of kind of, yeah, forcing people's bodies into things that they don't want to be doing. And the, I mean, the idea of doing this for infants and for children is just unthinkable. It's just awful. Can you imagine? Yeah, I just, I just find it disgusting, honestly. There's, there's a way in which like optimization becomes the end goal in and mm -hmm. of itself. And in, in a way that just like totally abstracts away the people. Mm -hmm. we, we, had, uh, we had Dan Buch on who wrote um, The Making of the Statistical Individual. Mm -hmm. And it has this, the cover is uh, Dorothea Lange's photo of someone who had their social security number tattooed onto them. Oh, God. And this is like prior to World War II where like the, the numbering tattoos has the, the kind of same connotations I think that uh, a lot of people make now. Mm -hmm. But he makes the point that uh, social security was a product of the increased growth of um, like insurance as an industry mm. and where everything became about predicting risk, mm -hmm. right? And so at that point, you now need to make people uh, like visible to the systems you have for tallying. Yeah. It is interesting <laughs> that like given the, the social context of uh, the Rohingya, that the, the thing that they are doing to make people visible is to collect their biometric data. Uh, yeah. It seems so, so just like blatantly absurd on its face, given given the context in which people ended up there in the first place. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, and one of the arguments kind of to that point, one of the arguments that we've heard for why um, biometric data is so uh, valuable or needed is that people are saying that the donor governments who fund UNHCR need to know, uh, need, need proof of their impact. So need to prove how many people they're providing aid to or providing food supplies to or that kind of thing. Um, but it's funny, every time I've spoken to someone from a donor government who works in that area, they've said, no, 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 we've never asked for that kind of information. Uh, you know, and I, it's hard to tell who exactly has, you know, whether there's a missing link, whether there's people demanding this information that aren't talking or aren't admitting to it or whatever. But there does seem to be something much bigger about just, yeah, making people um, legible and fitting into some system that has actually nothing to do with their well-being, their dignity, their rights, their, you know, their humanity, in essence. Could you just just briefly contrast the one of the episodes in that report that I, I found very interesting was the way in which people protested to have their ethnicity on mm. on their the actual physical cards? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, sorry, I'll just let you talk about <laughs> no, it. No, sorry, I find this topic. <laughs> it's so interesting because it's really, um, the way that the Rohingya went about this is really the opposite of what has happened in many other countries and the opposite of what you typically say is a, a kind of a best practice for collecting personal data on anyone. So normally you'd say, or going by uh, past failures of collecting personal data uh, or genocides that have been facilitated by the collection of personal data, you'd say, don't collect ethnicity, just, just never collect it because it can be misused because you can target people. I mean, you can see that in the genocide in Rwanda, in how uh, Jews in the Netherlands were rounded up and killed at a much higher rate uh, than Jews in other countries because the Netherlands or the Netherlands had collected much more detailed data about about Jewish people living in the country. Um, but the Rohingya, because of their history and because of their context, they specifically really wanted the word Rohingya to be. They wanted to be identified by their ethnicity, um, and this is particularly like striking and it, I mean it makes a lot of sense when you think about it in the bigger context because they have been persecuted precisely because of that identity and in Myanmar the, the Myanmar government have refused to call them Rohingya um, so there they've been called Bengali as in someone from Bangladesh and in Bangladesh uh, when they got there or people Rohingya people in Bangladesh they've been they get called uh, displaced Myanmar national so basically wherever they go people refuse to call them Rohingya um, so that's why when they did this strike in November 2018 about the way that um, UNHCR was issuing them smart cards, one of their demands was that they be identified as Rohingya. 
Um, and that's, I think, in all of the, yeah, that's the only only area that I found where that has been the case, where someone or a group has really wanted to be identified as that. Um, but I think it really points to the importance of context in designing these systems or in understanding what what is valuable and what should and shouldn't be included in this kind of uh, personal data collection. I think also the the point that it, it got to me was how much this is really about agency and mm-hmm. how at every step of the way agency is robbed of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't I don't know that I had a question, but it, it really was quite striking, just like yeah. as an as an incident in the context of the rest of that report. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think when you put it in that bigger bigger context of how I think it was in in the seventies, the Myanmar government passed a law that stopped people people of uh, Rohingya ethnicity from getting citizenship. So it makes complete sense that at some that 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 identity, the, the, the one of the most important facets of their identity is this Rohingya ethnicity, um, and that you would want that on any card that is kind of kind of purporting to put your identity and yourself down on a card or on a piece of paper or in a digital record. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I think they, I'm not sure if they actually ended up being successful in getting that or not, but yeah, it was a definitely a different case that really turns on its head that kind of principle of don't collect, don't collect ethnicity data because it could be misused. I mean, I think at that point as well, they've just been, they've been, they were persecuted because of their ethnicity already. It didn't really matter. Maybe it didn't matter. I don't know. I'm I'm uh, hypothesizing here, but yeah, maybe it was just more important to to have that on paper and to have proof that they were the Rohingya, despite the Myanmar government and the Bangladeshi government refusing to identify them as that. Yeah, it's really complicated. I mean, I've been thinking about this in the context of Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, right now people from Tigray and also uh, people who identify as Aroma, uh, like basically when I divest from the nation states and Ethiopia as a nation collects very detailed data, not just about ethnicity, but down to the like Woreda or like neighborhood level. And I think there's a lot of lack of clarity about who uses this data, where does it go? And just in particular with Tigray, um, starvation was used as a weapon of war. And then there was this demand for humanitarian access and a humanitarian corridor. And I just found, like for myself, speaking for myself personally, this was so fraught. Mm -hmm. Because on one level, of course, I don't want people to starve. And then, of course, I'm also thinking, like, how much biometric data collection comes along with this humanitarian access. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to the question, you have these kind of two terms that you use in the uh, George Floyd piece about data minimization, not collecting the data. And, you know, that that cause seems a little bit lost at this point. And then the other one is data retention, this idea Mm -hmm. that we delete as soon as the function it was collected for was over. Mm-hmm. And so Sam McDonald uh, at UNICEF put together a piece called A Fiduciary Approach to Child Data Governance. Um, and this idea of an information fiduciary is compelling on one level to me and that is very pragmatic, like who will take responsibility, like what kind of organization can you have for governance? But on the flip side, when you're looking at the immediate kind of humanitarian crisis in places like Tigray or what was happening with the Rohingya, who's going to be responsible? Who is a trusted actor? And that, you know, in a situation where your options are like Western nation state backed NGOs, the UN, armed militia groups, a state that's killing its own people. Like, mm. what do you have thoughts about either a like information fiduciary as a potential recommendation or like what are ways that you see of moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I worry that we've got to this point where we're thinking of it almost as a zero sum game, like either you give up your data or you don't get enough, you don't get food or shelter. And that I think is a really dangerous paradigm that this whole space is created to. And yeah, I think it's really important that even as hard as it might seem to try and think outside of that and to think what would actually be needed for those people, like focusing on the humanity and the dignity of the people that we're talking about, what do they want? Like what what would they want? And and starting from that perspective, um, and I see, I know what you mean about the kind of data minimization game being somewhat lost in some ways, but I have to say at some point, I just think that holding this amount of personal data 
it's a liability for the agencies. It can't, it's, I think, I think they're thinking of it all wrong in that it's, they're thinking of it as a valuable asset when it's not, it's a risk, it's a cost, it's a liability. It's hopefully a thing that will get, um, you know, get condemned internationally at some point, or I just have to hope that at some point they'll realize that holding this data is not in their best interests or in the best interests of the people that they're dealing with because it must just be so much to manage. Um, but yeah, I don't know, maybe that's uh, naive optimism on my part. But uh, in terms of information fiduciaries, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of interesting work and kind of ideas going on about there around kind of uh, data trusts or different models of data governance. I think I have, um, and this might just be me, but I have yet to see any kind of concrete implementation or like beyond the kind of ideas of maybe you have this third party, you get lots of people who, you know, all say we, you know, th there's value in all of our data altogether. So we, you know, trust this third party to negotiate rights or negotiate access to our data altogether. Um, I'm not super sure how that would work. And as you say, in the humanitarian case, it just seems so much harder. I mean, I was just going to add that last year, two things that happened was one, there was a contract signed between the UNHCR and the Department of Homeland Security in the United States for that biometric data to be shared with the United States Department of Homeland Security, mm -hmm. as well as, um, you know, I'm just thinking about in the, the case of the Jordan refugees with the Iris Guard, uh, mm -hmm. sorry, the Iris, the IPAY system, mm -hmm. where the uh, biometric Iris scan was connected to this kind of Goldman Sachs backed firm so that they could make purchases at the point of sale with their eye, mm -hmm. um, which feels very like almost from the movies, you know, mm -hmm. it's amazing that these things have gotten already so advanced, but there was kind of former British intelligence officers involved with the Iris Guard. And it just seems like whether or not there are individual people who have an agenda within these humanitarian agencies, I don't know, but there are definitely external actors that are interested. Uh, and all the other one I, was, I forgot to mention is there's already some white papers around, can we predict who's most likely to be a terrorist within these camps? And so there's definitely already actors who have an agenda with what to do with this data. Mm -hmm. And so it just feels like what, what can we do given, you know, some we've, even if even if everybody refuses to, to cooperate from today on, millions mm. of people already have their data in these systems. Yeah, yeah I, I also just want to add really quickly, Khadija, I think also the, you know, in the report, you talk about the, the Chinese company Cloudwalk technology and how that's related to a broader kind of Belt and Road initiative. Mm -hmm. And then also the, the example with MasterCard, right? I, I think the 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 concern of like at some point there's benevolence towards the humanitarian mm -hmm. um, Agencies also belies some of the ways that like there, as Khadija said, like other interests. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, there's so many, this, this is just such a complex issue because it's like, I've heard people from humanitarian agencies just say that they are, they suffer from not having enough money. So having to, they have to, they're forced into a position where they have to make deals with uh, companies like MasterCard or the MasterCard Foundation and that kind of thing. And yeah, I have to say I don't have too much sympathy for that, um, obviously. But I guess as Khadiju said, um, you know, what can we do given that so many people have access to that or are already in those databases? I think for me, one thing that would be ideal would be just having some way of mandating or some clearer agreements or even just like a little bit of transparency on who has access to these databases. That just seems like a really, really tiny step just for the humanitarian agencies to publish whatever contracts or memorandums of understanding they have with governments, with companies, whoever, about who has access to these various databases. Because at least then we'd know what we're talking about. Because I feel like so much of this is speculation on who has access to what, who can use data for, for what, and it, it puts us in a really hard advocacy um, position because we are starting from speculation and guessing and often it turns out to be right but it doesn't you know I'd much rather the advocacy be informed by transparent contracts and actual facts um, and I, I don't know if you saw a couple I think it was a couple of years ago now the World Food Program made a deal with Palantir 
um, for Pandy yes. to be yeah, <laughs> uh, um, for Pandy to be running. Was it yeah to have to be setting up a system um, for their data, and we tried to organize around it, and there was just no transparency on that. You know, there's still no access on, as far as I know, on that the agreement that Palantir made with the World Food Programme. And much of the pushback that we got from uh, people really high up at the World Food Programme, like the chief technical officer was, you know, you're operating on speculation. And it's like, yes, of course we are operating on speculation because you won't say anything about what the truth is or what the facts are or what kind of agreement you have in place. Um, yeah, and that's, that's a really hard position to be in to even be able to imagine what could mitigate or ideally what could you know, to go beyond harm mitigation and to think what would be a system that works with the people that we're talking about. I was just going to add, what's really funny is if you read kind of the UN's doc, not internal, but like uh, uh, meaning that it's like uh, public documentation, but it was kind of their conversations among themselves. When they're talking about the Palantir incident, they mm -hmm. really are talking about like the liability of certain kinds of partnerships. Like the concern was really about like risk mitigation in terms of the brand. Um, and does not seem to be a lot of soul searching about like the implications of partnering with Palantir. Yeah, yeah, totally. And um, yeah, I mean, I think Palantir, I, I mean, I'm sure I've, I've heard it on this uh, previous episodes of this podcast as well. I think Palantir is one of the ones that everyone kind of identifies as evil, not least because of the name itself. Um, but there are, I mean, there's so many deals with humanitarian agencies and big tech and much of that, you know, you could say because the humanitarian agencies don't have the capacity internally to run the kinds of huge tech projects that they've got themselves into. Um, and an alternative could be that the humanitarian agencies try and build internal tech capacity to deal with that. Um, I'm not honestly super sure what that would look like, but that could be an alternative. But just, I mean, on the bigger kind of issue of why these UN agencies are so bothered about digital identity, I think it's important to kind of go back to, yeah, to go back to where this all came from. And that is that uh, one of the sustainable development goals was that every person have a legal identity by 2030. Yeah, I think it's 2030. And that at some point seems to have got completed with a digital identity. Um, and I think it's worth remind, remembering that they're not the same thing. You can have a legal identity that can just be a birth certificate. And it doesn't have to be some kind of smart card that's linked to your iris or to your fingerprints. And that could, yeah, it just it frustrates me when the two get conflated at such a such a far point um, of these discussions. Is that is that conflation a, a product of? I mean, you, this was something you said much much earlier, which was some of the ways that humanitarian aid can just uh, inherently act as a kind of coloniality. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's the product of a lot of things in that digital systems make it much easier to have people be legible, like to measure people. And I know you've had many people on this podcast talking about that kind of issue. Um, and of course, the kind of colonial roots of all of this whole system, like what else would you expect in a way? Um and, you know, of course, the kind of intersection of the private sector and their involvement and their interests and the fact that they're often the ones behind funding uh, the humanitarian agencies. And well, if they're not, then it's the governments. Um, and in the case of the Rohingya in Bangladesh, the, the spokes a spokesperson or I think even a minister of the Bangladeshi government said very openly, the reason that we're collecting all this data from the Rohingya is so that we can send them back to Myanmar as soon as we can. And that's not even been a hidden, uh, like a hidden motive. It, he said it super openly. And yeah, I think it's, uh, it's interesting to think who, who wants this data and what do they want to do with it? And it's rarely anything in the pursuit of uh, the refugees' best interest. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what's interesting is that so much of this is openly declared experimentation. I feel like I'm going to butcher her name, but uh, Mursa Manda now wrote this piece that was really helpful for me called The Biometric mm -hmm. Assemblage mm -hmm. Surveillance er Experimentation Profit in the Measuring of Refugee Bodies. And she describes some of this experimentation. And a lot of the kind of UN's documents, it even explicitly says because there's no GDPR, 
we don't have to take the same kind of caution measures that we would in the EU or European Union. Um, and we have kind of more free freedom to kind of try out and experiment with different things. And we can see that these things are always experimented on the most like marginalized communities before they're generalized to the rest of the population. And just for a moment, I wanted to just scroll back to this larger question of mobility, mm-hmm. because there definitely is not it's not just giving people an identity, but also an obsession with who is the unbanked and Mm. a way to kind of combine this as fintech. And like the big thing is not even how much money or how much aid anyone's going to get, but where are you going to spend that? Because if it is e-currency or if it is iPay, you can't just, you know, barter with your neighbor that like cuts off like certain aspects of the informal economy. It definitely controls like where people kind of, not just make transactions, but how they move and having kind of intelligence about where populations are moving to, especially as this data is being shared between different agencies and various like state actors. And so I'm just wondering, like, I guess, what are your reflections on like mobility and what does this mean kind of at this moment where there is all this mass migration? Yeah, I think that, that, I mean, it just goes back to what you were saying around I think we were all saying around uh, that point of control, just having this amount of biometric data on people means that you can control either their movement or their actions, or you can mandate where, as you say, like where they spend money, where they don't spend money. Um, Yeah. It's just, I think biometric data being held in that, in this way can intersect with so many systems and it really ignores the kind of yeah the informal economies the fact that people not all people fit within these systems um one of the uh, one of the things in in bangladesh has been that uh, i think for the past couple of years at least you've needed to give your uh, national identification card when you're buying a sim card um and that has meant that yeah people in like the rohingya refugees have not been able to buy sim cards it's also led to this really weird phenomenon that i've observed among at least among my family there in that when you know we've got so my family's kind of upper middle class in living in taka and they have uh servants living in the house and when my uh aunts want a sim card for example when we're visiting they'll just send they'll just ask their driver to go out and get um and get a sim card and it makes me, yeah, I think it probably means that the drivers have a lot of SIM cards registered to their name and the upper, upper middle classes and upper classes don't have anything, any SIM cards registered to their names. And that, uh, yeah, it's just, I mean, it feels like the beginning of a really weird science fiction novel in a way. But yeah, it just it just feels like that premise of certain people who have access and privilege not wanting their biometric data to be associated with their actions so they're using their control and their power over other classes to make sure that they are the ones who give their biometric data one of the things that that i i just uh i know about this was a, a former colleague of mine sharifa sultana who writes about kind of technology and use in bangladesh she explained to me that one of the articulations for that law was um, to protect women who were being harassed over the phone, um, which I, I actually didn't know this thing about the the drivers, but that's very interesting. Huh. I actually haven't heard that that um, uh, articulation of the of why I can I can find she has it. a she has some papers about it. I'm happy to send them to you. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. That'd be great. But yeah, it's, I don't know. I don't know if that's just uh, the, the thing about the drivers is a bigger phenomenon or just one that I've observed within my own family, which I find deeply worrying and have, of course, had conversations about it with them. So one of the things that I'm curious about is the UK National Health Service or the NHS you talked about mm-hmm. was planning to store personal data of people with positive COVID results for 20 years. Um, And this was originally stated in their privacy notice, which has since been taken down. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny, this public health implies that it's being built for good. And I've just Mm -hmm. been thinking so much about 
we talk a lot about how crime is a dog whistle for white supremacy, but mm -hmm. it seems to me there's all this like tech for social goods, tech for betterment. And it just reminds me so much of the language of, I don't know, progress in the turn of the 20th century kind of eugenics sense. Um, <laughs> and I'm just wondering, you know, maybe not just like individual policy people, but like, what are these ideologies that are like allowing this influx of extraction to happen? Um, because just the asymmetry doesn't just seem to be one of power. Like for people in refugee camps, you know, they're trying their best to resist and they have very little kind of mechanisms to do so at scale. But mm -hmm. for the people kind of in the middle, particularly in like uh, Western nations, including the United States where we're sitting, people are horrified yet they're still, first of all, handing over their data to like iPhone to make it easy. They don't even have to put in a password. You can have your face. Mm -hmm. um, but there's not a huge amount of resistance and there still is overwhelmingly like this idea that this is good. This is modernization. This is progress, um, which just gives me eugenics vibes. So I'm just curious yeah. what you think. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes down to what we're optimizing for in a way. And it feels like uh, convenience and convenience is the primary thing that we're all uh, optimizing for. And that we've come to see, or what are we valuing in these systems? And we've come to see friction as something that's bad. And I actually think in a lot of ways, for example, if we go back to digital identity, there's the fact that digital identification systems were paper-based introduces a friction that is really, really useful, that stops people or stops, makes it a lot harder for people to misuse those systems. Um, whereas when we move them to being digital systems, you lose that friction. And I think the same with, you know, the example you gave of uh, being able to use Face ID on an iPhone, it, it's frictionless, it's easy, it's the same, I mean, frictionless is, is a, a value that society seems to really hold in high esteem right now. When a bit of friction, I think, like reintroducing or thinking about where friction actually creates important steps for rethinking or important, um, yeah, just points for, points for consideration and slowing down is, is, yeah, maybe not a bad thing. When you, who, who do you feel like when you're interacting? I mean, I know you and I have talked about this. And so the engine room has done such great work. And then before I had kind of like broader context, I looked on and I saw, especially because you guys are doing some work around predictive analytics and the child welfare system. Mm -hmm. And I saw UN involved and I was like, oh no. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, everybody was like, totally got it, was able to have the conversation that we're having now. And I just think it's interesting because on one level, I'm an abolitionist and I'm like dismantle everything. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, it feels like impossible to address, particularly globally, these questions without interfacing on some level with these kind of inter and non-governmental organizations. Mm -hmm. And kind of how do you think about that moral calculus when doing global work? Like what is because they're like almost quasi nation state. Like, I don't even know <laughs> how to you. Who do you even hold accountable? Like, you know, is it just the individual that you're working with and you base it off of that relationship or you know, kind of where are the levers to push? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing I would find a lot easier is if there were something, if there were some mechanism of holding them accountable. So I think it's important to remember right now, those humanitarian agencies have nothing to be held accountable to. Like they could do anything with that, with those databases of biometric data and nothing would happen which is incredible because they're, um, yeah, they're not subject to international laws in many places. I think there's, it depends, I think it depends on the kind of nuances of where they're based and where the servers are based and that kind of thing. Um, but for the most part, there's nothing that we can hold those institutions accountable to. And I think that is just a, a fundamental flaw of this whole system. Um, maybe it's a feature for, the people who are who design the systems who want to be able to try stuff out and you know that colonial dynamic really uh yeah reimagining itself once again um but yeah i think it, it is it is difficult and i mean as speaking as myself not as as uh the engine room i think about it i'm torn personally sometimes between that kind of approach of harm mitigation like can we like can we stop if we can stop some institution from making an awful decision with 
regards to a technical project that they were going to run. Is that beneficial? Yeah, is that harm mitigation beneficial enough to warrant working with them? Or as you say, should we just like personally, I think they shouldn't, this all shouldn't exist in this, like these systems should not exist, period. And how, what does that then mean? How do you kind of then make positive interventions in this space? Um, I mean, one example I, I think about a lot is we, we worked with Oxfam in 2016, 2017, because they were concerned or they were wondering about how they should use biometrics um, in their work. And we did some research for them. We found that actually, you know, the problem of fraud wasn't being addressed uh, with biometric data. Their cost and the, you know, the risks of biometric data were so, so huge that it didn't seem worth it. It just wasn't, it wasn't worth the risk. And as, you know, there was a lot of other moving pieces, but Oxfam then issued a moratorium on using biometric data across all of their, um, yeah, across all of their kind of federation entities. Uh, which seems to me to be a really beneficial thing, but at the same time, it's only Oxfam and all these other all these other humanitarian agencies did not do that, um, and they went forward and carried on creating biometric databases. So it does, yeah. I I struggle with that personally in terms of harm mitigation or genuinely kind of creating the systems and imagining the systems that I do want to exist. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Do you want to share something, We ideally something on topic and, and or off, um, but it could be anything. It doesn't have to be academic. Ooh, um, sure. I guess a couple of books that I've found really useful on, what have I been reading recently? Um, Native American DNA by Kim Tolbert. So I think that uh, we didn't, yeah, we talked about this a little bit, but that kind of intersection of, um, yeah, thinking of biometrics or of DNA or of kind of identity technology as the, the be all and end all instead of acknowledging the kind of complex social and political structures in which that exists. That was a, a really good book. I'd recommend that one. And this is a little off topic in a way, but this novel that I'm reading at the moment called uh, She Would Be King by Wayati Moore. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's kind of um, reimagining the foundation of Liberia and it's uh, kind of a combination of magical realism and, I guess, historical fiction. Um, but yeah, it's, I'm, I'm, yeah, really, really enjoying that right now. Well, thank you. That's it for today. This is the We Be Imagining podcast. Please hit us up at webeimagining at gmail.com. Um, become a new patron if you want to hear more episodes like this. We'll have everything linked in the show notes. And that's it. Thank you so much. <laughs>